The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. Today, my guest is Elizabeth Strickland. She is a fellow dietitian, but her area of expertise is in autism spectrum disorders. And I heard Elizabeth speak just a few weeks ago at the Michigan Dietetic Association, and I was so impressed with your expertise, Elizabeth, that I wanted you to be my guest. So welcome. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your audience. Well, you have been doing this work, you explained, for 30 years working with kids with some sort of developmental disability, and what a challenge and what a saint you are for doing this work. I'm sure you've seen a change with regard to how many children are affected with autism. What are the latest numbers you have? Well, the latest numbers from the Center for Disease Control is one in a 100 individuals in this country are being diagnosed with autistic disorder. And just up until, you know, a few years ago, it was 1 in 250. Ten years ago, it was 1 in 10,000. So really the numbers are just really escalating and spiraling out of control in the the U.S. And I'm sure you get this question quite a bit. You know, how would you, who've been in the field for as long as you have, how would you explain this epidemic almost, uh, this incredible rise? Right, and I have seen that because I've been in the field for, like like I say, 30 years. And 30 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, I never heard of autism. It was virtually unheard of. Just every now and then you'd have a rare case of an autistic child. And now it has really grown into almost 100% of my practice because there's so many children suffering with that particular uh, disability. And you have to ask yourself, you know, why? Why are so many children being diagnosed with such a severe neurological disorder? And, you know, there's a couple of things that have changed dramatically, you know, from the last generation to this generation. And one of the things that's really changed is their diet. You know, a child's diet today doesn't look anything like it did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Right. Children today are eating excess white refined flour, Know, white sugar, they have uh, processed foods, trans fat, artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, chemicals. They have just an onslaught of man-made chemicals that are put in their food today that they didn't have to deal with a generation ago. Right, and even pregnant women. You know, I think about the in utero environment for these kids where they're being exposed. Did I just hear jet fuel is in breast milk? It's in... It's everywhere. Yes, I know. Unfortunately, I know some of the the research um, has indicated that when they take a a blood sample from a newborn baby, a newborn baby has already has over 400 different chemicals in their bloodstream. Mm. And you're right, they're exposed to that in utero, and they're already compromised before they even come into the world. Right. It's a big problem. Yeah. Well, you did such a great job in Michigan explaining to other dietitians what your work is like and the kinds of challenges that these kids face. And I wonder if you might explain to our listeners, first of all, 
What kind of dietary challenges do children with autism come to you experiencing? Some of the major challenges they have to start with is just they have basic deficiencies, deficiencies in nutrients that the rest of us don't have a problem with because these children have a lot of what's called feeding problems where they have sensory issues. They don't like the way a food looks, it smells, what it feels like when they touch it, so they reject a lot of foods. And they tend to self-limit their diet to where they're only consuming a handful of foods. And typically, it's foods that are predominantly white, refined carbohydrates. That's what their diet is dominated by. Mm -hmm. So they end up deficient in protein and vitamins, minerals, omega-3 fatty acids, just the basic nutrients that they need for just normal brain functioning. They're not even, uh, even attaining that. Yeah, and I think that as parents become desperate to help their children, they're you know, often willing to try all kinds of dietary restrictions, one of which or two of which are the gluten and the casein restrictions or wheat and dairy. How often are those things really a problem, though? It's, it's more of a problem than, than we would think because, unfortunately, when we look at children on the spectrum, Research is becoming clearer now, even just being reported in January of 2010 in the journal Pediatrics, that over 70% of children with autism have gastrointestinal problems and severe enough to where that can cause severe behavior problems in these children. So then you have to start figuring out why do they have gastrointestinal problems. And sometimes it can be a problematic food that's causing the issue. And when we look at having problematic foods, 90% of the time, if you are allergic to a food, it's going to be wheat, milk, then there's soy and egg and nuts. So in general, when we're trying to figure out if a child has a problem with a particular food, the ones we're going to target are wheat and milk to begin with. But in general, that has been a diet that has been used in the autism community for over 40 years. It's probably the most common nutrition intervention you'll hear about in the autism community is a gluten casein free diet and from personal experience and many practitioners have also reported the same thing when we look at putting these children on a gluten casein free diet about 50% up to 60% you can see some positive improvement in that child's behavior in their sleep cycle in their gastrointestinal function improvement enough that warrants continuing the diet. Hmm. But those are tough changes to make. Yes, they are. They're tough changes to make, but in reality, we need to make those changes if it's going to be beneficial for the child. Absolutely. Because, yeah, if you have a child where they truly have a problematic food that's causing enough GI distress that causes behavior problems, you know, what is a parent's choice? They can use a medication to keep the behavior under control or they can look for what is the underlying problem that's causing this symptom to begin with, and you work on resolving it. And there's so much support now to try a gluten casein-free diet. There are so many different manufacturers out there that make almost every food there is, you know, gluten and casein-free. Right. So it's become it's become easier for families to implement than it was like 10 years ago. Yeah, I'm sure you remember the early days of practicing as a clinical dietitian where, you know, if you had somebody who couldn't consume gluten products, 
uh, it was almost impossible. You had to go through a mail order company, right. and now there are whole aisles in the supermarket. So exactly. it certainly is easier, as you say. And one of the other things that you mentioned during your talk, which I thought was really interesting, was that because these kids take a lot of medications, they tend to gain weight. Yes, there's one particular medication that has become very um, popular in the autism community that physicians are writing a prescription for, and it's called Risperdal. And Risperdal, they use it to control their behavior, you know, their mood and aggression and so forth. And unfortunately, one of the potential side effects is they may lose the sensation of feeling full. Mm-hmm. So they always feel hungry and they want to eat all the time. So they don't eat a healthier diet and expand their diet. They take what few foods they're willing to eat, which may be only three or four foods, and they eat more of them. Mm-hmm. So they already have an unhealthy diet, and they start eating more of the same unhealthy foods. So the average weight gain often we'll see is at least 20 pounds to 30 pounds of weight gain and a very quick time within two to three months. Mm-hmm. So parents do need to be aware when the child is put on a medication, they want to know what are the potential side effects so they can be prepared to work on preventing that particular problem, such as excess weight gain. You know, another thing that you had said was that you know, we take for granted what some of those clinical signs of these subclinical deficiencies really are. So we take for granted that if a child is irritable, we fail to see, I guess is the better way to describe this, we fail to see that a lot of the symptoms that they may present with are actually subclinical signs of nutritional deficiency. Exactly. And I think that's where nutrition is really underrated. We just don't grasp how important food is, especially for a young child under the age of 13 with a rapidly growing, developing brain. You know, how critical all the nutrients are to get that appropriate neural development and also the production of uh, neural transmitters. And I always let parents know that, you know, your child is eating enough food, enough goldfish crackers. He's eating enough junk food to gain weight and grow taller, but his brain is starving and missing out on critical nutrients. You know, for example, if a child is deficient in something like just one vitamin, like vitamin C, he's not going to have an adequate enough vitamin C to work as that cofactor to drive those chemical reactions that he needs in the brain to produce neurotransmitters. So he's going to have a deficiency of serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine, all these critical neurotransmitters that he needs for basic brain function to be able to learn and process information and to uh, remember things and um, uh, even to learn to speak and everything. He's going to be deficient in those neurotransmitters. And that comes from a vitamin and mineral deficiency. So often we look at an autistic child and we say, oh, he's irritable or he can't pay attention, he can't focus, he can't concentrate, he's having behavior problems. And you just assume it's the diagnosis. But often it's a vitamin and mineral deficiency that's leading to that particular symptom. And we really do these kids an injustice when we just medicate them trying to control the behavior versus figuring out what are some of the underlying symptoms that's causing these type of behaviors. Oh, I so agree with you, Elizabeth. I think we're so quick to medicate and we fail to see some of these basic needs that kids have. Mm -hmm. One of the nutrients that you specifically hit on 
was omega-3 fatty acids. And of course, we know that the general population, the free-living, healthy population, is likely to be deficient in omega-3 as it is. How do you get a child who is, I guess, truly a picky eater for real reasons, maybe they're having stomach upset, how do you get these kids to A, eat a nutritionally complete diet, and B, get a little bit more of this supplement? Well, focusing on omega-3 first, that's a, that's a good nutrient to bring up because that's absolutely critical when you look at children on the autism spectrum, also kids with uh, Asperger's, attention deficit, hyperactivity, dyslexia, dyspraxia, speech delays, that whole group of children, research has been very clear that these children tend to have one thing in common, that they're low in omega-3 fatty acids in the form of EPA and DHA. And the dietary source of that is fish oil. And these children tend not to eat fish on a regular basis because of all their sensory issues. They don't like the way the fish looks, the way it smells, what it feels like when they touch it, how it feels in their mouth, so they tend to reject it. Even if they would eat fish, mom and dad, especially kids on the autism spectrum, they're not feeding them fish because they're concerned about the mercury contamination, and that's a neurotoxin. So they have legitimate reason to limit the fish in their diet. So one way we have to get omega-3 in these children is we do have to rely on a supplement. We tend to look at using a uh, child-friendly supplement so we can get these omega-3 fatty acids in their, in their body because that's the major structural component of their brain tissue is omega-3 fatty acids. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Elizabeth Strickland. Elizabeth is a registered dietitian, and her practice focuses specifically on children with autism spectrum disorders. She's been working for over 30 years with children with developmental disabilities, and she's going to continue our conversation on eating for autism. And I should mention, Elizabeth, that Eating for Autism is the title of your book, and it is a fantastic guide for parents or caregivers who seem to be at a loss really to know what to do with, with kids with these really difficult and challenging eating disorders. Tell me something. Is there a brand of fish oil supplement that you would recommend for parents? Yes, I think parents need to be especially cautious when purchasing an omega-3 fatty acid in the form of a fish oil because it can be contaminated with mercury as well. So you want to buy from a reputable company, you know, one that's been around 30, 40 years, has a good reputation, they have good high-quality manufacturing standards. And, And one example is Nordic Naturals. Nordic Naturals has been around for 40 years. You know, they have private labs that test their products to assure that all traceable amounts of mercury have been eliminated from. So they have a distilling process to eliminate the mercury. So that's important that parents, you know, buy from a reputable company mm-hmm. and to, to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Are there other supplements that you recommend? I recommend in general every one of these children, I like to get them on uh, omega-3 fatty acids in mm-hmm. the form of EPA and DHA. And then I also put them on a basic vitamin and mineral supplement because their diets are so poor, and it does take weeks to months to working on expanding their diet to become healthier. So in the meantime, you really have got to get these kids started on a good, high-quality, comprehensive vitamin and mineral supplement. 
that's going to have all the vitamins, all the minerals in it, at least one to three hundred percent of the recommended daily allowance. Are there tricks to get children to eat a more nutritionally complete diet in addition to giving them the supplement? Yeah, there's some basic strategies that mom and dad need to start with. And some basic strategies is first that they need to realize that when the child has a, they're, they're different from a typical developing child who's a picky eater. If that child with autism has some feeding issues and you present him with a food that he doesn't care for, he may have a meltdown, a severe tantrum, he may bite himself, self-abuse. So you cannot force a non-preferred food on these children. So non-preferred foods have to be offered separate from mealtime during therapy so they can work on expanding their diet in the therapy situation and then bring the food to the table once they tolerate it. In the meantime, what can mom and dad do at the dinner table is make sure they offer their child at least at every meal three foods they know their child will eat because mealtime should be pleasant and it should not be therapy time and we don't want the meal to shut down on them, so we give them three foods we know they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. And and you want to give them a smaller volume of it so they don't get visually overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And then mom and dad got to really watch how they speak to their child during mealtime because often the child gets in the situation where they can say no and control and manipulate. So we want mom and dad to watch their language. You know, if they want their child to eat, let's say, like, you know, a bite of peas, They don't ask their child to take a bite of peas or beg or plead or bribe. They just make concrete statements to their autistic child, like Johnny eats peas with his spoon. Johnny eats green beans with his fork. Johnny sips milk from his cup. Because these children really relate to concrete statements. They can process it, and then they can respond to it. Very interesting. You know, one of the things you mentioned that I think is so important and so difficult for parents today is to find foods that don't have the kinds of ingredients that could set off a problem, like the artificial flavors and the artificial colors. And yet if you pick up a a general box of cereal or anything that a kid might get at a birthday party or even some of the foods in school food, it's almost impossible to find a product that doesn't contain an artificial flavor or color. Yeah, it is. It's a big challenge, and depending on where a family lives, it can be even more challenging. You know, I went grocery shopping yesterday and in San Antonio and went to Whole Foods grocery store, so I was able to fill my basket up with organically you know, grown fruits and vegetables, hormone-free meats and poultry. I was able to get anything boxed or canned with no artificial colors and flavors. But that's a unique situation. So it depends on where a family lives and how big of a grocery store they have around them and what's available to them. Right. So it can it can be it can be difficult and more challenging. You know, in many situations, I advise mom and dad that in the in the town that you live in, you may not have that available to you. So you want to start really looking at using your farmers markets as much as possible. That where you have locally grown fruits and vegetables, and, and a lot of those are organic. You know, the same thing with uh, with chicken and and beef and so forth. Looking at things that are more locally available, joining co-ops that tends to be their focus, or you may need to once a month travel to the large city that's close to you, maybe it's an hour away or so, but you may need to make a monthly trip to stock up 
mm-hmm. on some foods that are safe that you can bring back home. Well, it shouldn't be so difficult, you know. It really shouldn't. I think we are, unfortunately, the country, our country, the way that we're, we are today, everything has rolled into what's convenient, right. not as what is safe, not what's healthy. You know, I think we're, we're really starting to see the repercussions from convenience foods and in general and an impact it's having on everyone's health. You know, Elizabeth, I think it was last year sometime when I saw the Institute of Ag and Trade Policies report on mercury-contaminated high-fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. And right. I had spoken with Renee Dufault. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she was the woman who was the researcher at the FDA who first uncovered the presence of mercury in high-fructose corn syrup. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk so much about you know, the mercury and the vaccines, of course, and I think you you responded to that question at the conference very well and that, you know, it's a good idea to take mercury out of things. Right. But... Lo and behold, we find it in things like fish in just about every every river that's been tested by the U.S. Geological Survey. Or we find mercury in sweeteners. Right. And I think it's so difficult to even find a diet that's, that's free of these contaminants. And that's why I tell parents not to get overwhelmed because if we really looked at every possibility of where we're having exposures, I think we would get so frustrated and so overwhelmed that many parents just give up. Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I can't, I can't not control this. So we have to do things as, in a family. They have to kind of do things in baby steps. Where they start with the basics, they gradually work their way up, and they do the best they can with what they can control. They can't control everything in their child's environment, but the things they do have control of, they need to educate themselves on it and to implement the things they can control. I think that's really good advice. You told a very touching story about a little girl who didn't have language skills. Mm-hmm. And she was very upset she wouldn't eat. Finally, I think there were some color, some colors were used to yes. help her communicate. Correct. Tell us that story. Yeah, this was a, a little girl, um, she's eight years old, diagnosed with low-functioning autism. She had severe behavior problems, self-abuse. She refused to go to the table to eat. She would have a tantrum meltdown. She'd have to be forced to the table. She'd limit herself down to no more two or three foods. And she was under a lot of heavy-duty medications to control her behavior and self-abuse. And when she had went to see a new speech therapist she'd never seen before, the speech therapist, since the little girl was nonverbal, taught her a few colors, and that colors was a way to communicate. Like, for example, the color red meant hurt, pain, angry, mad. So once the little girl learned a few colors and what they meant, the speech therapist asked her to draw a picture to express herself. So the little girl draws a picture of a stick figure of a person. Then she picks up the red crayon and draws a big red ball where the stomach is and a red line of the chest of the stick figure. And, you know, describing that she has pain and hurt and angry within her GI tract. Right. So her parents took her to a GI specialist and they did a scope on this child. They went down her esophagus and identified she had severe gastroesophageal reflux disease where she had stomach acid coming up her esophagus, setting her chest on fire, 
burning her throat and then going back down, and they never saw it. Mm -hmm. And this little girl had been suffering with that reflux for years, and no one knew what she was trying to tell them with her head banging, refusing to eat food, refusing to go to the table, severe meltdowns. They just kept continually trying one drug after another to to calm her behavior down. Mm -hmm. And it was an undiagnosed gastrointestinal problem. And how lucky that that little girl was able to have speech therapy and have the resources to get in to see a GI specialist. I think right. of all the kids that are living in rural communities or in urban areas where they, or where they don't have health insurance. Well, we only have a couple minutes, so I want to leave that open to you to leave us with any messages on topics that I may have failed to ask. Well, I think in general I like to get across the parents that they have, they need to take control over the child's health. Um, I think for too long we have relied on other means and we need to kind of get back to basics and we really look to, need to look at using nutrition as the core therapy to help our own children. You know, we can feed, that's one thing we can control. We can work on feeding our children some healthy, whole, organically grown foods. We can work on getting the proper vitamins, minerals, omega-3 fatty acids, protein into the children to feed their child's brain. We can control what goes into our child and getting out those artificial colors and chemicals. At least start with the basics of teaching their child really good, healthy eating habits. That that's something that they can give to their child as a legacy. You know, that they can learn that and carry that with them for the rest of their lives and take a little responsibility of caring for their own self and their own health. Mm -hmm. I think that's great advice. I want to thank you so much for being with me today, Elizabeth. And I want to let our listeners know that Elizabeth Strickland's book is called Eating for Autism. She is a registered dietitian with a master's degree in nutrition. She focuses on autism, Asperger's, ADD, ADHD, and she's been doing this for over 30 years. So we have indeed been speaking with a, an expert. And I want to let everyone know that the website is www.eating.com. ASDPuzzle.com. That's ASDPuzzle.com. Elizabeth, thank you again so much for your time and your work. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, I want to thank our listeners, too, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.